You're listening to Policy Currents, a weekly podcast from the Rand Corporation. I'm Deanna Lee. And I'm Evan Banks. Every Friday, we bring you new insights from Rand's latest research and commentary. It's April 17th. Yesterday, on a phone call with the nation's governors, President Trump acknowledged the fact that states, not the federal government, have most of the authority when it comes to deciding when, whether, and how to ease social distancing restrictions and reopen businesses and schools. The president went on to share a set of non-binding guidelines for state leaders to consider in the coming weeks and months as they continue to monitor how the COVID-19 pandemic plays out. This came after a contentious week in which the administration lobbied for a rapid reopening of the U.S. economy, and a number of governors pushed back, arguing that it's too soon to end social distancing practices, which are helping slow the spread of the coronavirus. Several questions remain about how federal, state, and local authorities will cooperate to fight the pandemic. For instance, how much support will states need from the federal government? What will it ultimately take to be able to reopen the country? And what are the potential benefits and drawbacks to reopening in a patchwork fashion? Three RAND researchers, two lawyers, and a physician provided some insights in a Q&A that you can find on the RAND blog. Here's an overview of what they had to say. The researchers described the different areas in which states have jurisdiction and those in which the federal government has authority. It comes down to this. A large amount of response infrastructure, intelligence, and public health surveillance resides at the federal level. But the actual decision-making about whether to lift stay-at-home orders and reopen businesses and schools, that happens at the state level. So how might the federal government and states work together? Philip Carter is director of the Personnel and Resources Program in the Homeland Security Operational Analysis Center at RAND. He's also an adjunct professor of law at Georgetown University. What's needed now, Carter says, is cooperation between all levels of government. This is already happening in some areas, such as FEMA funding for state responses and National Guard deployments. But there could be more coordination on the public health side. Carter also says he's worried about friction between states and the federal government. When asked if the federal government should weigh in more, Rebecca Hafaji, a health policy researcher and lawyer, explored some possibilities. She said that evidence-based guidance from the federal level could help, and she emphasized that there are lessons to be learned from other countries. Taiwan and South Korea, for example, have had much more aggressive physical distancing measures and contact tracing. Early evidence suggests that these approaches are effective when they're centrally coordinated. The federal government could also step in if some jurisdictions fail to govern in a way that's consistent with scientific evidence, says Hafaji. The federal government cannot order a state to issue a stay-at-home order, she says, but it can use other levers to encourage states to adopt such policies. Finally, Courtney Gedangle weighed in on the public health implications. She's a senior physician policy researcher at RAND and a specialist in infectious diseases at Boston Children's Hospital. We have to remember that the virus does not respect state lines, Gedangle said. To ultimately control COVID-19, everyone needs to be immune. That means developing an effective vaccine and having enough people take that vaccine to develop herd immunity. 
or having enough people get the virus over time to reach that same level of herd immunity. She added that leaders at every level really need to be thoughtful about policies around reopening the country to make sure that not only people feel safe, but that they are as safe as possible. That will hinge on relatively aggressive testing policies, contact tracing, and ultimately treatment vaccines. Our researchers covered a lot more ground in this Q&A. To read the whole discussion, visit the RAND blog. As the COVID-19 pandemic has illustrated, medical supply shortfalls may hit different regions at different times. Hotspots hit hard by the disease have high levels of need and may have insufficient supplies. Meanwhile, cool spots may hang on to their existing cash and even acquire new medical supplies because they fear becoming a hotspot in the future. A new RAND paper identifies a mechanism that could address this problem and help ensure that resources end up where they're needed most. Here's what the authors suggest. Assure cool spot regions that if they release their supplies to hotspots and delay acquiring new supplies, then they will have priority access to medical supplies in the future. And if those new supplies aren't produced as quickly as expected, or if the cool spot suffers an outbreak earlier than expected, then the promise of new supplies will be fulfilled by drawing from a centralized, dedicated pool of equipment. It's important to note that the success of this concept depends on the participation rate among cool spots and the rate at which critical supplies are produced. Finally, the authors say that there are two supplemental policies that would increase the probability that this strategy would work. First, ensuring the existence of a marketplace for pandemic-related medical supplies. And second, subsidizing the production of new supplies. As long as the pandemic features uneven geographic distribution of peaks and valleys of COVID-19 cases, or the uneven production of medical resources over time, there are benefits from directing resources away from cool spots and toward hot spots. You can find the researcher's full proposal on RAND.org. The recently passed federal stimulus package was designed to provide much-needed support to households affected by COVID-19. But what protections are offered for those experiencing homelessness? After all, these individuals often live in parks, shelters, homes of friends and family, or on the streets, so sheltering in place often won't be an effective option for them. And the stimulus checks that have been issued by the federal government may not help either if you don't have a mailing address or any banking information on file with the IRS, then you simply wouldn't receive the funds. So what would a relief package look like that better addresses the needs of people experiencing homelessness? RAND experts Aaron Clark Ginsburg and Sarah Hunter and USC's Benjamin Henwood outline some ideas. For one, policymakers could consider allocating funding to reduce exposure in shelters. This could be done in a number of ways, by screening individuals for symptoms of COVID-19, by using convention centers and other larger spaces as an alternative to shelters so that social distancing can be practiced, and by providing shelters with hand sanitizer, soap, and other resources to reduce contamination. Policymakers could also consider strengthening healthcare programs to help reduce the vulnerability among people experiencing homelessness, many of whom have pre-existing physical and behavioral health issues. And serious efforts might need to be made to ensure that stimulus checks reach everyone. Implementing ideas like these could result in less risk 
for people experiencing homelessness, the workers who provide them with services, and for all of us. Last month, as the rest of the world battled COVID-19, North Korean leader Kim Jong-un conducted four short-range missile tests. The timing of these tests may seem odd. Wasn't Pyongyang also dealing with the virus? Well, according to the regime, there isn't much to deal with. North Korea claims that it has zero cases of COVID-19 in the country, even though there's evidence that suggests otherwise. But North Korea's activities last month do reveal something, says Ran Soo Kim. Even during a pandemic, Pyongyang will continue to use nuclear and ballistic missile testing to retain some international relevance and maintain pressure on Washington and Seoul. And while COVID-19 will ultimately pass, North Korea's nuclear blackmail will likely remain, quote, a perennial affliction for which the world has yet to find a cure. Before the coronavirus struck, RAND researchers surveyed a nationally representative sample of educators about how they use digital instruction materials. Now that many districts have shifted to full-time online learning, the insights from this new study are arguably even more relevant. Here are the highlights of teacher survey responses. Most teachers use digital materials both for planning and classroom instruction. However, the majority of teachers use these materials to supplement other curriculum materials rather than as main instructional materials. The top digital materials used during instructional time include a mix of general resources such as YouTube and content-specific resources such as Khan Academy. This was true across subjects. When asked what barriers they face in using digital materials, teachers most often cited the costs, both for schools and for students at home. This was particularly prevalent among teachers with more low-income students. RAND researchers are also in the midst of conducting new surveys of America's educators as teachers and principals navigate school closures, distance learning, and a range of other topics. We'll share insights from those surveys with you soon. RAND is a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision-making through research and analysis. For more on what we covered this week, check the show notes at rand.org slash podcast. You can find more insights from RAND on COVID-19 at rand.org slash coronavirus. See you next week.